Welcome to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about innovation and how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. One of the early trends that seems to be taking shape in the COVID crisis is that the big are getting bigger. We're seeing this in retail, in entertainment, in food delivery, and it's a real challenge for innovators who tend to be small. It's also a quiet challenge for Canada. On our own, we don't have the size, the scale, perhaps to compete and thrive in a less open global economy. Some sectors are just discovering this and others have known the challenge for ages, among them media. Canadian media on its own has never had the scale to compete against global players, which is why we've protected the sector. Similar challenges of scale and sustainability now face a range of Canadian tech companies and innovators who are having to rethink their place in a post-COVID platform economy with the likes of Amazon and Alphabet rule. David Scott is uniquely situated to talk about both. He's the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of The Logic, a digital publication focused on the innovation economy. His small team of journalists reports on companies and creators, as well as the policies driving transformational change in our country. David led digital transformations at Global News, the Boston Globe, and Toronto Star, and in 2018 decided to put his experience and beliefs in innovation to the test by launching his own media company, even though the industry around him was in financial decline. On this episode, we'll talk about the logic, about the challenge of building and protecting private sector media in this country, and what COVID-19 is doing to the innovation side of the economy. David, thanks for joining RBC Disruptors. Thanks, John. Delighted to be on with you. I've been eager to have this conversation for some time to better understand how the logic's doing, but also because I've sensed a shift in its journalism and ambition during the crisis. I can't quite put my finger on it, but wonder what you would say is different about it. It's, it's funny you say that because from my vantage point, the beginning ideals of the logic were always about constructively disrupting the status quo. And that meant fighting for the little guy. And what the crisis has done is really helped encapsulate or sharpen that focus when it comes to small business in particular. There really was a sense that I was getting from our readers that government policy was thinking about the unemployed workers, rightfully so, and it was thinking about banks and liquidity in the markets. But somewhere in there, it was missing the big middle, those small businesses that don't have a voice in the same way as others. And that was really where I think we found our voice early on was in highlighting their plight and presenting the questions that I hope those individuals would have wanted to have answered. That's fascinating. I didn't, didn't realize the logic was fighting for the little guy. Nothing wrong with that. It just sounds very H.L. Mencken-like. Uh, was that part of your thinking when you launched? It was. You know, I'd lived in the United States for a few years. And like many people, like many Canadian expats who, who leave and then come back, you, you tend to see Canada in a different way. And what struck me upon my return, and I came back to work at the Toronto Star, uh, and this is not an indictment of the Toronto Star, it's more just a statement about Canada, the conservatism of the country more broadly, is something that while it has served us well in, in, in bad times before, I think of the, the Great Recession and how our banks managed to, through that conservatism, uh, keep Canada in relatively good shape, it also really became a barrier to innovation and to 
giving a voice to new Canadians and a new energy in Canada that I had also seen come alive while I had been away. And I felt like the logic could play a role in that space of speaking to a a mature innovation economy as opposed to a startup innovation economy where the little guys have grown up and they have questions and they have policy things that they need answered as well. Particularly in the innovation ecosystem, what inspired you to go that route when you launched? Well, when we launched, even at that point, this was in 2018, we're coming up on our second year anniversary, the energy sector was not what it used to be. And foreign direct investment had dropped dramatically from the resource economy. And so the question was naturally, well, what's going to make up that difference in Canada? Should there be an FDI issue is a whole other question. But it was clear that the energy and the emphasis was on supporting innovation and a knowledge-based economy and shifting the economy to a knowledge-based economy so that you can bridge that gap. And I thought and still do think there was an opportunity for us to fill that space. We didn't have to really cover the traditional public markets or the energy sector in a way that others did. We could cover everything through a lens of technology. The other thing I would add about technology is, you know, I had just finished being, working at the Boston Globe, watching Donald Trump's ascendancy. And all through that period, you, there was a lot of mea culpas after the fact from newspaper editors saying, you know, we didn't quite see it coming. And I think technology played a really large role in that. And yet technology journalism had been siloed as this, you know, gadget type of section of the business section. Most of the headlines that you got about technology were product launches and not really its wider or deeper implications for society and the economy more broadly. And, and in that case, who it was leaving behind and what kind of income inequality it was creating. So it, it's interesting you should refer to Trump because you launched not only in the wake of Trump, but with the rise of th this notion of fake news and the anti-media uh, sentiment in, I don't want to say most of the population, but in decent chunks of the population. I remember when you were putting together your thoughts. We had some good conversations about it. I think I'm glad you ignored most of probably what I said because it's really impressive that you've come this far through two years in facing some pretty significant headwinds across the industry. I wonder if you can walk us through the challenges of launching a media startup. I am a traditionalist in journalism. I've grown up, you know, I've spent two decades in traditional media and the fundamental tenets to me of journalism have not changed in a century. And the journalism ethics that come from all of those generations before us, I think, was lost somewhere along the way in the early 2000s in a lot of places. And the logic is really an attempt to bring some of that back. And so, yes, only 9% of Canadians say they will pay for news. I think our job is to be one of the organizations at the tip of the spear in changing that behavior by just doing real in-depth, meaningful, nuanced reporting. Our reporters don't file more than one story a week at most. They have the time to think deeply. And that was part of my pitch was giving reporters and editors the time and space that they needed to do the creative work. Understanding where we were at the time with clickbait and ad impressions driving the publishing economy, that was not common. You know, the average journalist is reporting eight to 10 stories a week. And so all of that gave me confidence that if we put it out there, people would pay for it. 
And what's been really interesting about it, John, is that it's not just one party uh, or ideology of person that's subscribing. We're seeing subscribers from across the spectrum. Ultimately, that seeking of the truth is something that is identifiable across all ideologies. And our job is to facilitate hard conversations. If we can bring people from different sides together to talk about the issues, then I think we're doing the most important part of the job, as I would like to frame it. So this isn't a media podcast. It's not a journalism podcast. Uh, we, we like to talk about Canada's prosperity, frankly, through innovation, through enterprise. And media surely is part of that. But one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation was to develop our understanding of why what you've just talked about matters to Canada's success. Great for what you're doing. Great for your readers. I don't quibble there. How does this contribute to the Canadian journey? I think that if we can facilitate conversations that force us to look at ourselves in the mirror and clear away some of the barriers towards innovation in this country, it'll make things better. I'm an immigrant. My family immigrated to Canada from South Africa. And I watched my dad struggle through a lot of those challenges of regulatory red tape and just status quo. <laughs> you know, there's no, I wish there was another more eloquent way of saying it. Uh, he was uh, a car salesman and he came to this country and part of being a, a car dealer, he launched a business that was a, a kit car business and he ran into trouble with Transport Canada for reasons that I'll never understand. That business was taken down because they couldn't get past the regulatory red tape because the big six auto manufacturers had kind of put a pull on them. That experience, watching him go through that, has kind of led me down this path of, of fighting for the little guy as they try to drive innovation forward and, and push the economy forward. Is that what got you into journalism, seeing that struggle? No, that's a, I know we're not a media podcast here, but I left South Africa when I was nine years old and on our way to Canada, stopped off in London to visit some relatives. And as a white South African, uh, there's a lot during that time of apartheid that I was oblivious to. And when I got to London in Webley Stadium, there was a concert taking place for Nelson Mandela. It was his 80th birthday party. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the name Nelson Mandela. So then I came to Canada and going from a country that had a censored press to a country with a free press, I watched so many formidable events and learned about so many formidable events. Tiananmen Square, Berlin Wall coming down, Meech Lake, Quebec referendum, so many events that happened that I just got it in my blood. And deeply, I think intrinsically, I understand or am passionate about the role that a free press plays in a society. Without a free press holding those to account, it's really hard to have forward progress. Small businesses are vital to our survival and our ability to innovate, yet they're still regarded as the economic little guy and often overlooked when we're trying to deal with an economic crisis. One of the challenges in commentary about innovation and entrepreneurship is that it tends to be boosterish. Some of this comes from trade associations or from incubators and accelerators. And of course, they're trying to create enthusiasm and multiply enthusiasm for the entrepreneurs and risk takers in their environment. And we need to ensure that's balanced with independent inquiry, with people asking fair questions and often tough questions and revealing facts that may not be comfortable for everyone in the so-called ecosystem. By definition, innovation is about taking chances. 
it's inherently risky. And therefore, innovators are people who are not just tolerant of risk, they're willing to embrace risk. And Canadians often are not great risk takers, even though we have outstanding risk takers all around us. How do we, especially coming out of the COVID crisis and taking on the rest of the 2020s, become more of a risk embracing nation? I want to switch a little bit to the Canadian innovation conversation. This is true for every innovator, is the epic Canadian challenge of scale. And it has proven through generations, regardless of platform or type of media, it's hard to get to scale in this country without essentially a subsidy, without being underwritten. And, and you've said you don't want to be in someone else's pocket. But it's hard to get to scale just on your own in this country how are you going to overcome those challenges, David? With that 9% that I mentioned earlier of Canadians willing to pay for news, I think that number can be higher. You look at the Scandinavian countries and it's upwards of a quarter of the population is paying for news. Even the U.S. is now up to 14 or 15%. So that delta, I think, is a market opportunity in and of itself. Then you have the rapidly shifting market in Canada. I wouldn't be surprised if there's more consolidation in the newspaper industry in Canada by the end of the year, especially in light of what's happening with COVID-19. So even internally, I think there is a market opportunity to grow by being a Canadian voice on a global stage in ways that, that I think are needed and in this day and age are an opportunity given the, I was going to say bifurcation, but really the trifurcation of our world with the United States, China, and Europe all seemingly going in, in different directions. David, do you think there's a global market for the so-called Canadian perspective? Well, if I look at other opportunities, there's always a global market for Canada. In media alone, we've had some of the best journalists of, of our lifetimes have been Canadian. But on the global economic stage, Shopify became the most valued Canadian company. And it's a startup that 15, 16 years ago was Toby Lutke sitting in his garage building snowboard designs. Um, Nortel, Blackberry. We are not a nation that has not created great innovations on the world stage. Our challenge has been keeping them there. And also, I think, supporting the next wave of startups as they come and giving them the tools they need before the entrenched conservatism congeals the marketplace and blocks out new entrants. I'm glad you mentioned Shopify because there have been a couple of extraordinary stories this week. One was Shopify becoming the most valuable Canadian company by market cap. At the same time, we saw Sidewalk Labs pull out of the country, one of the brashest the most daring efforts in innovation we've seen in a long time. I've been reflecting on how, how those two different stories occurred simultaneously and speak very differently to Canadian innovation. One is kind of domestic creation, then takes on the world. That's the Shopify model. The other is the world coming to Canada to use Canada to create something bigger mixing that talent that you mentioned, but bringing international capital and also access to international markets. Maybe we can dive into both of those stories and then chat about what we should draw from them. Shopify is not just a Canadian success story, it's an Ottawa success story. And it speaks to the pre-existing community that Ottawa already had in place. And Silicon Valley has their PayPal mafia. There was an Ottawa mafia that helped support that company, fund that company, and give it its life. I think that regeneration 
is really an important factor along with there were government supports that helped them. You know, the, the Vicky funds of the world do matter and the tax treatments do matter. These things that sound so policy wonkish. We talk about subsidies for journalism. I don't think it's very different to subsidies for other industries or other sectors in that you do need a little bit of a spark plug to get something going. And once it's there, then yes, absolutely. The capital out of the U.S. and the capital, global capital can come in and there can be an opportunity. But um, at the beginning, I think those things help. The other thing I would say is, I think one of the things we don't talk about enough of is our pension plans and the institutional investors that we have in this country. We may not have the largest venture capital pools in the world, but we do have some of the world's best pensions that are leading globally. And we don't really pay attention too much to the world, but they're also putting a lot of financing into startups and going down that path of supporting the Canadian ecosystem. It's interesting you refer to Shopify's Ottawa roots, which are critical, but it's also grown incredibly in Toronto as well as other centers. And I think that kind of emergence of multiple innovation hubs in the country is a quiet part of Canada's emergence as a tech force in the world because it gives companies optionality. Uh, you can have strong offices in multiple centers now in Canada. You're not stuck in one town. It's interesting when you talk about the centers and the pockets, the superclusters policy that the government has been doing is an interesting case study because it really is a question of how do you interject capital into these environments in a way that either picks winners or spreads it enough that you can give everybody a chance. And I think it's an awful policy question that I do not want to be responsible for, and I appreciate the people that do have to wrestle with that. Because do you pick winners or do you spread it thin so that everybody gets a chance to become a winner? Navdeep Baines, Minister for Innovation Science and Economic Development, has talked about creating 10 Shopify's. Is that the right approach or is it to create a million logics and hope that other investors will then pick up and, and lift it further. What do you think the country would need to create 10 Shopify's? I think we need a different framing sometimes on the barriers. You know, I talked about earlier the barriers and feeling like you're rolling a snowball uphill as an entrepreneur. It would be really nice if you felt like the ball was rolling downhill with you and that you were supported and that you didn't have to fight at every turn to get things done. And I appreciate that status quo comes from process. I get how organizations, how hard it is for them to change, not because they don't want to change, but because the cultural inertia is something that's built into the process. It's how they are. It's how they work as well as they do. But what that does is it makes it really hard for new ideas to grow and to be heard and thinking about things in a way that is, how do I reduce red tape? How do I clear the way so that we can have more companies and more entrepreneurs feeling secure enough to take the risk? But that DNA I think has to be supported, and I'm not sure we're there yet. That's a good opportunity for a segue to Sidewalk. People behind Sidewalk would agree with you wholeheartedly, I suspect, and say, yeah, that's our frustration we dealt with uh, as politely as we could, but dealt with that, those kind of forces of resistance. Now, many of the critics of Sidewalk would say they're the, uh, the Goliath, not the David in this scene, but they were trying to do something novel, something different, uh, definitely something from from scratch, but it was a bold ambition to create a global hub for urban innovation. 
curious first what your perspective is on the sidewalk decision and what it says about us. At its basic form, Sidewalk Labs as an entity just made a lot of strategic errors along the way from a public relations, government relations standpoint. And I think that ultimately that's what really hurt them the most. I think the inability to bring people on side with the idea was the biggest challenge, you know. But there is a psyche thing there, which is, do we as Canadians think that we can build our own stuff for the betterment of the country? Or do we as Canadians, for the betterment of the country, feel like we are too small as a country to do it on our own, and we need support, whether it's from the U.S., whether it's from China, whether it's from Europe, we need others to help us and work in a globalized economy. I think that's the fundamental question that Sidewalk in some ways encapsulated. And, you know, it's funny, it, it almost seems quaint now because the economic nationalism is going to come out of this COVID experience. If we're going to see more economic nationalism, I'll come back to the question of scale. How, as a country, and how are our companies and entrepreneurs going to achieve the scale that they need to to innovate? And that's what Sidewalk said it was going to do for Canadian innovators. It was going to bring that scale, especially of data, to fuel innovation. How are Canadian entrepreneurs, in your mind, going to achieve scale in a world that has probably more walls? It starts at home too, right? I mean, I've countless people working in the life sciences tell me that procurement is easier for them in the U.S. and it's easier for them to get FDA approvals in the U.S. than it is to get approval through Health Canada or in Ontario hospitals. So, you know, the idea of procurement, and I know that some people have pushed for more procurement of of Canadian companies' work and protection of Canadian IP in Canada. When I speak of red tape, I, I don't mean that in a disparaging way towards the many civil servants who commit their lives to helping the country grow. I mean it in terms of that kind of thing, where the rules and regulations and ways that we have done procurement alone have hampered our ability to support our own as they try to, to reach that next stage. But to the broader question of, of an industrial strategy around innovation, curious what your thoughts are in terms of how the, how the federal government, but also some of the provinces have done on that front. You mentioned super clusters. There's also SIFs, the Strategic Investment Funds, the VC supports uh, that continue to roll out. Um, a lot of initiatives and even interventions to spur innovation. Is it working? You know, there's pre-COVID life and after-COVID life. Okay, so pre-COVID life, was it working? I think it's fair to say it was. There's enough capital in the market. There's enough talent in the market. There's no question about that. Canadians have a great education system, and I think it was getting there. I don't think that the journey was over, though. I, I think it was probably just in the third or fourth inning. Post-COVID, whole different set of challenges and probably a different global environment. I suspect one of the things we'll see is a more bifurcated world, especially between the U.S. and China in technology. Silicon Valley, I suspect, is going to be stronger, not weaker, out of this. They'll have uh, not only access to more data, more computing power, but maybe even more social license, which they, interestingly, were starting to lose pre-COVID. You know, it's interesting, the unintended consequence of a lot of the COVID lockdowns was to make the big bigger. The big box stores were allowed to stay open, but the small mom and pop stores weren't. 
that I think has tilted the playing field against startups. What's been interesting to see is how the government came out and warned against takeovers in this period. I think there was a vulnerability right now for anybody not named Amazon, really. What's Canada's role in all of that? Even pre-COVID, we were trying to wrap our heads around a global world, as I talked about before, of China, the US, and Europe. And we're really trying to keep everybody happy and nobody happy at the same time. And I wonder what horse do we want to tie our cart to? As we come out of this crisis, and I know in these days it's still very raw and hard to think beyond the survival mode, but what would you hope or want Canadian entrepreneurs to be focusing on? It's a difference between a lifestyle business and a, a growth company. I think for entrepreneurs that think about things now in a way where they have to look after their own and not think that some Silicon Valley bank is going to come in, I think that those days are over for a little while and that ultimately Canadians building Canadian companies for the world should take more inspiration and will take more inspiration from the Shopify's who can do it on their terms. As a country, having that wherewithal and self-reliance internally is something that is a good place to start at least once we start to crawl our way out of this very bizarre period. As you look ahead even into 2021 on the hope scale, where's your hope for the country and for the innovation economy? I hope that it can weather the storm and have enough capital injection to not set us back decades in terms of new ideas, new innovations. This is supposed to be a period, you know, in times of crisis is when new companies are born. And my hope is that in the midst of the crisis, there were ideas and companies that were given the supports they needed to become the next Amazon or the next Shopify. And we'll tell the story 20 years from now about how back when, in the middle of the great lockdown, their company was born. After talking to David, I'm a little bit concerned about Canada's future and our ability to navigate choppier waters, to take on a more challenging, even more rough and tumble world than what we've known in recent decades. This is going to require Canadians to be more ambitious, to be more entrepreneurial, to be even greater risk takers. And that's gonna be hard coming out of a crisis that is going to scar lots of parts of our society and economy. So we're gonna to have to find ways to work together to focus on a world that is different and to understand Canada's place in that world probably is smaller. That means we're not gonna have the scale automatically to succeed. So we're going to have to rely a lot more on innovation to gain the scale that we don't naturally have on our own. There were five key takeaways from my conversation with David. Number one, scale. Canada is a great base and an excellent home market for entrepreneurs, but we're too small for growth. Every Canadian growth company needs to see itself as a global company. Number two, talent and capital. Innovators need to think globally about talent and capital. If you want to take on the world, you need to be part of the world. And that means ensuring the world feels welcome here through immigration and foreign investment for small firms as well as big. Number three, procurement. 
Governments especially need to get more strategic with their buying power to support Canadian innovators. Number four, focus. We need to make tougher choices on where we can excel. It may be foolish to try to pick winners, but we need to spot the rising stars and get behind them. And number five, criticism. We have to challenge ourselves. If we're uncritical of each other, we'll miss opportunities to improve and we won't see our blind spots. It's why we need strong, independent national media to hold us all to account, including innovators and entrepreneurs. It's time for our rapid fire segment. Fast questions, fast answers. Let's begin. What are you best known for? Being married to the smartest person on earth. Name one tech software you can't live without. WordPress. Name one Canadian you feel has moved the dial for innovation in Canada. Jim Balsilli. Favorite publication outside of the logic. Financial Times. Biggest challenge you'd like to tackle. Journalism. One Canadian you admire most. It sounds trite, but Terry Fox. What does innovation mean to you? Disrupting status quo. David, thank you so much for spending time with us. Tell our listeners how they can subscribe to The Logic. They can subscribe to The Logic at thelogic, T-H-E-L-O-G-I-C dot C-O. Did someone else have dot C-A? So this is the thing about starting a, a business, a bootstrap business. Uh, to buy dot com, somebody offered me $100,000. I said, thank you very much. I'll pass. Thanks for listening to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about innovation and how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. Leave us a review and let us know where you'd like us to take the conversation on future episodes. 